Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, chapter 1. And I'll read verses 1 through 5 aloud, if you'll follow along silently. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. My early 20s, I attempted to share the gospel with a man that I had hoped to see come to know Christ. He was a bit combative, to say the least, if not annoyed. But I pressed on. When I'd hoped to emphasize the deity of Christ, which I felt to be important, he simply said to me, that's not true. I said, no, no, Jesus is God. I had heard that in a Bible study one time. So I I thought that I could say that and that it would have some impact. He said, no, no, the Bible says Jesus is the Son of God. I had nothing left in my one-shot arsenal. And so that conversation concluded. I conceded as he explained to me that Mary was his God. And I walked away a bit discouraged, to say the least. I expect that most people, maybe some high percentage of people in the evangelical church today would say, I believe that. I believe Jesus is God. I believe that God walked the earth. It's a bit of a troubling doctrine in light of this passage from Solomon in 1 Kings 8, verse 27. He said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. A humble attitude toward the effort that he had made to honor the Lord by building a house for the Lord, for worship, a place to be set aside, a sacred place, not itself to be worshipped, but itself to be a place specifically designed for the exaltation of God. And in his humility, he acknowledged that no place can contain the person of God. How is it possible that God could walk the earth if he is a God who cannot be contained? Exodus 40, verse 34 reads, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. No man can see God, lest he die. Moses was not allowed to look directly on the glory of God, so God hid him in the cleft as he walked by. Isaiah observed the train of the robe of God as it filled the temple. The temple was filled with God's glory. And the impact on these men and other men throughout Scripture who have had some exposure to the person of God was that it brought them low. Isaiah's words were, woe is me. I may as well be dead is what that means. I'm a man of unclean lips among an unclean 
people. How then is it possible that God himself could walk the earth? That this man, who was in fact a man, would actually be God? Now I'll tell you from the beginning, we're not going to uncover all the answers to those questions because there is upcoming text that we'll need to address in the coming weeks. And I'd rather wait and address those things in fullness when we get there. But this morning, what you will see from this passage of Scripture is that Jesus is, in fact, God. Very God of very God. Meaning, 100% God. There's nothing about Jesus that would cause us to legitimately say that he's not completely God. John emphasizes three truths about Jesus in our text this morning that will lead to eternal life for everyone who will believe in him. So as we move forward in this text, as we move forward in this book, this record of the life of Jesus, my hope would be that two things would happen, a number of things, but especially these two things. One is that you would see it, that you would see the gospel of John as, in fact, a treatise of Christian doctrine, because it is. It's deeply theological. It would and often does impact the smallest of children who read it with an attentive ear and a heart toward learning and understanding and knowing more about the Lord, but it also perplexes the wisest of the wise. That is the reality of the amazing elasticity, so to speak, of the book of John, that it reaches the simplest of hearts, and yet it confounds the most complex and wise of heart. So it's our joy to go through this book together. It's our joy to observe the person of Christ, to see more deeply and more accurately and more faithfully and more humbly who he is and to be impacted by it. And so, as I said, I hope that you will see this as a treatise on the doctrines of Christianity, because it is. But there is another side to the coin of the book of the Gospel of John, and that is that it is an evangelistic outreach in and of itself. As you know from your memory verse for today, the hope would be that some would receive eternal life. That those who do not have eternal life would read what is written. That what is written would be explained to them. That they would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the Son of God. And that believing they would have life in him. More specifically in 1 John, as John says it, that they would in fact, based on what is written, have eternal life. Now, this might feel a little bit mundane to you. It might seem like a replay of a recording that you've heard many, many times. I hope not. I hope you wouldn't be thinking, you know, I've been through the book of John before a couple times few times. I'm not 100% certain that I really have anything to learn from the book of John. Let me just tell you, I've been through the book of John some significant number of times, and already I'm seeing things I hadn't seen before. Already I'm being moved by the reality of the greatness of the person of Christ. 
That would be my hope, that you would see the book of John as a doctrinal expression of the Christian faith, but that also you would see it as the very criteria by which you would see people come to know Christ. Let me be very bold and say there are people in this room who do not know Jesus Christ and pretend that they do. Fair enough? Jesus has assured us that there would be tares among the wheat. Paul has told us that it is necessary, in fact, for there to be factions. Uh, He's told us that in 1 Corinthians. Why? So that those who are approved would be known for being approved. In other words, Christians would be known against the backdrop of those who pretend to be Christians. John has told us in 1 John that it's obvious who both groups are. And it is obvious, but it's not always easy. It's not always something that is easy to walk into or ramp up for, to communicate to that person who clearly doesn't know Christ but wants folks to think that he does. So what greater criteria, what greater data, what greater tool for you and me to go through together that those who are deceived and those who are deceiving would be exposed to this rich truth that they would experience the grace of God that they would enjoy the mercy of God. And this would likely include far more people that you know who are not in this room, right? Certainly you know plenty of people who would say, I'm a Christian. And as their lives are assessed by the criteria given us in the perfect word of God, it is crystal clear that that they're not. They've redefined Christianity. They've embraced someone else's redefinition of Christianity. And so the criteria in the book of John is going to set them apart. Should be a a time of great encouragement for those of you who are in Christ. Because to be increasingly exposed to the person of Jesus Christ is to grow in conformity to him and to experience victory in those areas where you find yourself sometimes unlikely to obey him until you become discouraged. So I trust that you and I will be encouraged together as we go through this together. As I mentioned, John emphasizes three truths in this text, three truths about Jesus that will lead to eternal life for everyone who will believe in him. Number one, Jesus is eternal God This is a critical Christian doctrine. Yes. Yes, it's critical. No, a person cannot be a Christian and disbelieve this doctrine. It's fundamental. You say, I know some people who are Christians who who don't know about the deity of Jesus Christ. No, you don't. You might have thought so because of their conduct or even a decision uh, they made somewhere along the line. Someone approached me less than a week ago to tell me uh, that in their church, over 100 people had been baptized and most of them were small children. One person I know rather well asked this person, so did these children have any awareness of what the gospel is? Oh, I, I don't know about that. This is very common in our day. It's really critical that a person know what it means to be saved, that a person know the gospel, 
that a person rests and trusts in the gospel, the gospel of the God of the Bible, the gospel of the God of grace, the gospel of the God who is Jesus, the God-man. No, you cannot be a Christian and disbelieve this doctrine. It is absolutely, utterly, and completely impossible. And you might feel as though at some point in your own life, you're convinced that you were in Christ, and yet you weren't aware of this doctrine. It's utterly and completely, biblically impossible. Scripture tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the Logos. You see, this is the Christ of the Bible. To believe in some other Christ is to believe in a non-salvific Christ. This is one of Satan's best ploys, to convince you that you are a Christian because you have embraced someone that appears much like the person of Christ in the Bible, but it's not the same Christ. Mormonism promotes a false Christ. It's not Christianity. Jehovah's Witnesses promote a false Christ. It's not Christianity. And so you have to ask the question, what is the distinction between the unsaved, falsely converted Mormon and the unsaved, falsely converted Baptist who says, yeah, I, I, I love Christ, I love the church, I love the Word, but he denies the deity of Jesus Christ. The only distinction is a different flavor of heresy, but it's ultimately the same foundation of the same heresy. The word was here in our text, the Greek term hain, is the imperfect form of the word ami, which means to have existence, to be. The imperfect tense is where the action is from the past with no mention of an end to the action. So it is from the past. In this case, the past is the beginning, the Greek term arche, which is the word from which we get our English word archaic, antiquated, from a period in the distant past. The Greek term means the beginning. In the beginning was the word, something that has taken place in the past, and there's no indication of a point at which it has stopped. It's also in the active voice, this verb. So what that means, as you know, is that the subject continues to perform the task. In this case, the task of being, the task of existing. In the beginning, the Logos existed and continues to exist. The Logos was not made or created, but simply was. The well-known heretic of the 3rd and 4th centuries, Arius, falsely said about the Logos... And I quote, there was once when he was not, close quote. That's the basis of Arianism. There was a time when the second person of the Trinity did not exist, and so he is simply a created being. D.A. Carson points out that since Mark begins his gospel with the same word, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, it is also possible that John is making an allusion to his colleague's work, saying, in effect, Mark has told you about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. I want to show you that the starting point of the gospel can be traced farther back than that, before the beginning of the entire universe. And that's a good way to put it. The beginning 
that John is talking about here is the beginning of creation. Logos means word or statement, speech, talk, conversation. But how is the term being used here in our text? What is the Logos? The philosophers Plato and Philo tried to communicate that the Logos was a divine idea of ideas, that it was some sort of concept, an ethereal, ambiguous concept. Gnosticism, which promoted a philosophical and heretical redemption from matter, but not a redemption from sin in Christ, also promoted an ambiguous idea that Logos was a philosophical matter of reason and rational principle. But H.D.M. Spence says, Readers of the Old Testament would not forget that in the record of the creation in Genesis 1, the epochs of creation are defined eight times by the expression, and God said. The omnific word uttered itself in time and thus called into being light and life and all things and gave birth to man, end quote. So this is a clear and sound refutation of the idea that the Logos is just some sort of ethereal idea, a concept, even a speech or a message. The equivalent term in the Old Testament to Logos is Dabar. You see Dabar all throughout the scripture. I'll read a few passages for you. In 1, 1 Samuel 3, 21, And the Lord appeared again to Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. In essence, as the Septuagint would say, by the Logos of the Lord. The bar of the Lord. Psalm 107, verse 20, He sent out his word and healed them. And delivered them from their destruction. This is how Logos is used in the scripture. The power of God to utter things into change. To bring about change by his very inspired speech. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When you think of the Logos, this is what you should think of. You should think of the power of God to speak things into reality. God and God alone does that. Because John relies so heavily on the Old Testament, we should look there further. The Word is the source of creation. Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. The amazing reality is declared by the psalmist of God speaking the heavens into existence. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1-6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. Genesis 1-9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. 
Genesis 1.11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. Genesis 1.14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. Genesis 1.20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 24 in Genesis 1, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. Genesis 1, 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God spoke these realities out of nothingness into existence. The common Latin term is ex nihilo. Out of nothing. You can't do that. You don't do that. Siri doesn't do that for you much as you want it to. Any effort on man's part to do anything like this is just a really bad imitation. The Word is not only the source of creation. The Word is the source of revelation. Jeremiah 1 verse 4 says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. How did Jeremiah know this? The word of the Lord came to him. God's word, God's breath, God's sufficient breathed out truth from his heart came to Jeremiah. And that's how it took place. Isaiah 38 4, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz. Turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. This is the power of God to speak things into reality. And this passage, one that I hope you're familiar with, it's the flip side of what this is not. In Ezekiel 13, beginning with verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. The modern vernacular for undermining and really dismissing the immense value of the reality of the word of the Lord is to say, God told me. And whatever it is, no matter what it is, no matter whether or not that person thinks Scripture ratifies it or confirms it, 
It's an utter betrayal of God's word to say God told me something. You may as well say, thus saith the Lord, and the only difference is vernacular. That's how it was said in the King James era. In our era, it's nothing different except the structure of the verbiage. The word of the Lord, the logos, it is the very expression of the heart of God. And repeatedly, Scripture tells us that the canon is closed. God has spoken. And if you want to say it this way, that's fine. If you want to say God still speaks, meaning he speaks through his word, his word is living and active, say it that way. Because I think that would be an accurate thing to say. But when you're convinced that God is giving you additional information, that is nothing short of heresy and borderline blasphemy at best. But this is so common, as you know, in our day. It's not unusual. It has not been unusual for someone to tell me, you know, I'm right there with you. I totally believe that, except for this one time when God spoke to me. It's a pipe dream. It's a very selfish effort to communicate that you have some sort of special interaction with God that nobody else does. You know, God and I have this thing. He told me something one time. He gave it to me in a dream or a movie. But doesn't that sound a little bit ridiculous when you consider the fact that Jesus is the Logos, that God himself in person is described as the Logos? How dare we consider even the hint of a thought of equating some thought that we conjured up with the person of Christ. And the only argument against this is personal experience. It's always personal experience combated against the Word of God itself. The Logos is the Word of the Lord of the Old Testament with a different term, the Var. D.A. Carson says, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son, end quote. See, that's the idea. That's what you want to hang on to, this idea that Jesus himself the living revelation of God's word is, in fact, a self-declaration, a human declaration of the very word of the Lord. That's the idea, that when Jesus opens his mouth, when something comes from his heart and is communicated to someone else, the word of the Lord has been delivered. Thus, he is referred to as the Logos. D.A. Carson says, because this word, this divine self-expression existed in the beginning, one might suppose that it was either with God or nothing less than God himself. John insists the word was both. The word, he says, was with God. The preposition translated with is pros, which commonly means to or toward, end quote. So there is an eternal intimate togetherness in the logos and God, that God himself would have this relationship with the Logos, that the Logos would be toward or to God, speaks of personal 
intimacy within the Godhead. But Logos is clearly and certainly personified where John uses the personal pronoun he. He was in the beginning with God. And even more certainly in verse 2 where he says, and the word was God. Clear, huh? The Logos was with God in the beginning and the Logos was God in the beginning. This should bring to mind Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is the same beginning. When God created everything out of nothing, the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Now, I think you'll find this to be incredibly helpful as you minister to your Jehovah's Witness neighbors. You need to understand this. If you've ever been in that situation where you were pleading with God to give you wisdom to know how to combat the heresy of the Jehovah's Witness cultic doctrine, this is what you need to know. In an effort to deny the deity of Christ, Jehovah's Witnesses have deceitfully added an indefinite article here to make it say, and the Logos was a God. This is a deceitful effort on their part with some seeming degree of integrity on their part. It seems scholarly the way they present it to you. But I'm about to equip you to undo these deceitful efforts. The verse literally reads like this. In beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the God, and God was the Word. Now, your ESV reads, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, same as your New American Standard. So you say, it looks like translators added a definite article and left another one out. And if you thought that, you're right. But they did so for natural, lingual, translational purposes. So they added the to in beginning, because that makes it flow better in English, right? It's a logical, normal thing when doing translation from one language to another, when the languages are not identical in their structure, and they're certainly not Greek and English. So translators added the definite article, the, in between in and beginning. So it reads, in the beginning, again, to make it flow well in English. It's a normal translation procedure. But they intentionally left out the in, and the word was the God. If you're looking at your translation, you'll see that that the is not there. Why? So that it would flow well in normal English. Again, a normal translational practice. And whether the definite article the is there or not, it means the same thing. It means the God. It means the only God. It means God, whether the definite article is there or not. But because there is the definite article in the phrase, and the word was with the God, but there is no definite article in the phrase, and the word was God, there's no definite article before the word God, Jehovah's Witnesses believe is acceptable and important to add the indefinite article, A, so that it reads, And the word was a God, rather than what it actually reads, and the word was, no indefinite article, a God. The word was God. So it should read, and the word was God, because that is what it says. 
There's no need to add an indefinite article. And by the way, there is no indefinite article in Greek. They don't exist. Why? They're not necessary. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. But Jehovah's Witnesses say the first reference, the word was with the God, is to God the Father, the true God. But the second reference, and the word was a God, is to Jesus, a lesser God, a God among lesser gods. So they will tell you that he is not the almighty God. That's kind of the buzz term for the last 20 years. I've had people say that to me. He's God, but he's not the almighty God. He is but a God of lesser stature. Yet, if you ask them to turn with you in your Bible to Revelation 1.8, you will read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It means strength. Revelation 4.8, very similar. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These passages are clearly and plainly about Jesus, the always second person of the Trinity. And that they want you to think that he is not the Almighty God, he is a sub God. D.A. Carson says, John's omission of the article is not part of an elaborate, syntactically ill-conceived argument to prove a point, but common Greek usage. In other words, it's no big deal. Nothing to see here. John Weldon points out, because it does not say, and the God... Jehovah's Witnesses argue they are free to interpret this second usage of God as figuratively meaning a lesser deity, a God, signifying Christ's exalted status even though he is still only a creature. Their main concern here is to escape the clear meaning of the passage. Christ is here called Theos, God. The difficulty is that had the Apostle John used the article, he would have declared that the God was the Word. Now hang with me on this. I'm still quoting. He would have declared by adding that article that the God was the Word. Had he done so, he would have confused the persons of the Trinity and supported modalism in the early church known as the heresy of Sabellianism. In other words, to declare that the God was the Word, Jesus, would have stated that all of God, i.e. the whole Trinity, was Jesus. This would have supported modalistic belief that there is only one person in the Godhead, i.e. Jesus, and that the terms Father, Son, and Spirit in Scripture only refer to modes or offices of the one God who exists as one person. End quote. That's what T.D. Jakes teaches. Jehovah's Witnesses use Julius Manti's Manual of Grammar to prove their point. In response, Julius Manti, a trusted scholar, has said, and I quote, Since my name is used and our manual grammar of the Greek New Testament is quoted on page 744 to seek to justify their translation, I am making this statement. Of all the scholars in the world, as far as we know, none have translated this verse as Jehovah's Witnesses have done. 
If the Greek article occurred with both word and God in John 1.1, the implication would be that they are one and the same person, absolutely identical. But John affirmed that the word was with the God, the definite article preceding each noun. And in so writing, he indicated his belief that they are distinct and separate persons. Then John next stated that the word was God, i.e. of the same family or essence that characterizes the creator. Or in other words, that both are of the same nature and that nature is the highest in existence, namely divine. The Apostle John, in the context of the introduction to his gospel, is pulling all the stops out of language to portray not only the deity of Christ, but also his equality with the Father. He states that the word was in the beginning, that he was with God, that he was God, and that all creation came into existence through him, and that not even one thing exists that was not created by Christ. What else could be said that John did not say? End quote. Jehovah's Witnesses also misuse A.T. Robertson's words by a parcel quote from his work called Word Pictures, they quote him as saying, the absence of the article here is on purpose, end quote. But they don't explain why he says it. It's a demonstrably deceptive use of A.T. Robertson's words. Robertson responds, and I quote, By exact and careful language, John denied Sabellianism by not saying ha theos and ha logos, the God was the Word. That would mean that all of God was expressed in halagos, the Word. And the terms would be interchangeable, each having the article. In view of the preceding facts, especially because you have been quoting me out of context, I herewith request you not to quote the manual grammar of the Greek New Testament again, which you have been doing for 24 years, also, that you not quote it or me in any of your publications from this time on. Also, that you publicly and immediately apologize in the Watchtower magazine, since my words had no relevance to the absence of the article before Theos in John 1.1. So, you meet that neighbor who brings this data to you and begins to quote A.T. Robertson, and you say, wait a minute. They misquoted him. They used the same words, but they took it completely out of context. John 17, 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John 1, 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18, so powerful, so clear. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Hebrews 1.3 he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.8. 
but of the Son. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Colossians 2, 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. John 8, 58, maybe the sin quinon of all scripture verses related to the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I simply love that verse. Yahweh. Who are you? Yahweh, to exist. I am the existing one. Before Abraham was born, begot. Jesus says, I am a me, Yahweh. You didn't have to be a Jewish scholar to know what he was saying. You just needed to be Jewish. In other words, when John uses the two verbs in the same context, en frequently signals existence, whereas agenita signals coming into being or coming into use. In the beginning, the word was already in existence. Jesus is eternal God. He is not the man God who was so obedient, so good, so pleasing to the Father that God transferred him out of humanity into deity. He is very God of very God, very man of very Man. Number two, he is creator God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Simple enough? Everything that is made is the creation of the personification of the Logos, God's word. Similarly to how wisdom is personified as a workman in Proverbs 8.30, which says, Then I was beside him. This is wisdom speaking, wisdom being personified. Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. The word personified, wisdom personified. Hebrews 1, 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the creator. You can tell people that. It's true. Colossians 1, 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the, you've heard it before, the creator and the sustainer of all things. John doubles the effort with positive grammar by saying all things were made through him and negative grammar by saying without him was not anything made that was made in case you didn't get it the first time, right? All things were made by him. There is nothing that is made that was not made by him. Years ago, I was doing a devotional in between a little kid's soccer game and I was teaching through this passage in Colossians, and uh, 
I was proclaiming the reality that God had created all things, and it was kind of rainy that day, and a seven- or eight-year-old little boy looked at me and pointed at an umbrella and said, God didn't make that. And I said, well, he made the chemicals that it was made from. That settled it for him. I was happy because I had nowhere else to go after that. (laughs) There's nothing new under the sun. God created all things. The fact that man has been given the ability to modify things into something other than their original state doesn't change the matter with which they were created. Jesus is eternal God, and Jesus is creator God. Does that encourage you? The Jesus that you at one time probably had an idolatrous viewpoint of, you know, a good man, maybe kind of a a viewpoint developed from a musical or a movie or maybe even some bad teaching or some strange conversation that you had along the way. Encouraging to know that God became flesh. God who does not change took on change. Well, number three, Jesus is Savior God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. John 5, 26, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. John 8, 12 says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9, 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John three nineteen, Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Scripture tells us the same thing about Cain. His condition was what it was because of the deeds of evil. John 12, 35, Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. In John eleven twenty one, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Mission accomplished. She believed in the Christ, the Son of God. And John has told us that this ought to be proclaimed, that those who would believe that, might have life in him. John 14, 1 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. 
believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And you know what Jesus said to him, don't you? I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The light of the world cast upon utter and complete spiritual darkness. And all those who receive it will be granted adoption as children of God. And all those who reject it will die in their sins and experience eternal suffering. Verse 5 in our text says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He is the granter of life because he is the granter of light. He brings the light. He is the light. He brings life. He is life. This is a clear reference to the creation event in Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the same way that God cast light upon an utterly and completely dark world with no light, the Son of God came into the world, a completely dark world, and cast the light of life upon it. In Genesis 1-3, we read, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And when the light of the world came into the world, there was light, and all those who receive it will receive life eternally. God overcame the darkness with light. But John is also utilizing the great contrast between light and darkness to contrast good and evil. In John 3, verse 19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. This is the great tragedy of the modern church, perhaps every church throughout history, that there are those who play a good game. But when light is cast on their lives, they run like a cockroach to avoid the light, to avoid exposure of the true dark condition. John eight twelve. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light is among you for a little while longer, he says in John 12, 35. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. 
1 John 1 verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then he gets extremely practical about that rich theological truth where he has said that God is light and in him there is no darkness. In verse 6 he says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There is a difference between walking in the light and walking in the darkness. 1 John 2.8 at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And the practical reality is that this person walks in division with other people with a proactive effort to hate them on a regular basis, and they are unconcerned about it. John 12, 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. There's no excuse. There is no excuse for walking in darkness. Jesus came into light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Isaiah 7, 14, foretold to us. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he came. God came. God came with a heart of forgiveness, an uninterrupted passion for extending kindness, grace, and mercy to those who would repent and believe in the gospel. But these are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in Him. The one who is eternal, the one who is creator, and the one who is Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, the comforting truths of this text, but we thank you also for the difficulty, the, the hard realities of not only this text, but the whole of the book of John. May we be faithful. Oh, Lord, help us be faithful.
Help us always to return to Scripture. To be the one who is moved with compassion by the kindness of the Christ whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light. And when those who are weary come unto him, weary of their legalism, he will in no way turn them away. Lord, help us to be communicators of the compassion and the forgiveness by which you have adopted us into the family of God. That we would be brokers ourselves, evangelists, missionaries, with a trusting willingness to communicate truth to those who will hear it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.